Subscribe to The Spectator this summer and get the next 10 weeks of the magazine as well as unlimited access to our website and app for just £10. Not only that, we'll send you a bottle of Pims absolutely free, only while stocks last. So go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims to claim this offer now. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their pieces in the latest issue. This week, we'll be joined by Kate Andrews, the Spectator's economics editor, who argues that the government's social care reform plans simply don't add up. Then, Mary Wakefield will be reading her article about the importance of open church doors, even in the age of COVID. And finally, the writer Caroline Crampton reads her review of Tom Chivers' new book, London Clay, Journeys in the Deep City. First is Kate Andrews. As COVID-19 swept through care homes in the spring of last year, the public watched on with horror and helplessness. About a third of all COVID deaths in England took place among residents of these homes. It was worse overseas. In Spain, care home residents accounted for 40% of COVID deaths last year. In the Netherlands and Sweden, it was around 50%. In Canada, almost 60%. But this doesn't provide much comfort. Britain may belong to a large club of countries that got their pandemic policy wrong, but the results, regardless, were deadly. The huge holes in Britain's social care system have been exposed. They've been expanding for decades, but comprehensive reform was avoided time and time again. In the past year, though, what would normally be deemed politically impossible has been reconsidered. COVID made everything possible, one government insider tells me. That includes manifesto overhauls. And the Prime Minister sees an opportunity. Boris Johnson is convinced that he can now do what his Tory predecessors promised but failed to deliver, comprehensively reform social care. An announcement is expected in the coming weeks. It will tear up the Tory manifesto pledge to protect the public from tax rises. The reforms, which have been trailed for months, are expected to be funded by a 1p tax on national insurance contributions to make up the costs. It's a big U-turn. Tories who renege on their promise not to raise taxes usually struggle to get re-elected. Even a 1p tax might not be enough. The tax hall would raise £6 billion to tackle growing NHS waiting lists and to provide social care support. But health chiefs are reported to be pushing for even more funding. Behind closed doors, the debate carries on. The whole way of selling this, says a source close to government, is to frame the tax rise in terms of the NHS, what it needs to recover post-COVID, and then set up long-term sustainable funding for social care. It's a plan to get the NHS more funding, we'll be told, rather than a tax hike. If this great Tory U-turn solved the care home problem, it might be worth the cost. But Johnson remains wedded to the Dillnot proposals from 2011, which wouldn't add a single bed to the care home system. Instead, the proposals aim to protect the sick and elderly from the threat of having to sell their home to cover their care. But in many cases, that translates into a subsidy for the rich. The proposals transfer the cost of social care to the taxpayer. Ultimately, it's a regressive policy, says one government source. Taxpayers will protect the assets of many people who can afford their own care. We're changing who pays, but not much else. Taxes are going up, but without any guarantee that the money will translate into a better care system. Taxpayers will expect faster GP access, shorter NHS waiting times, and crucially, better care for their elderly relatives. They may not necessarily get that, nor is there much evidence that the new proposals will improve the system that led to so many avoidable care home deaths. 
Already this hypothecated tax, that is a specific tax to fund a specific purpose, is being fudged. The money raised from the national insurance hike seems designated for the NHS before the social care system. History shows this often happens. In 2002, Gordon Brown put 1P on employer and employee national insurance with the stated purpose of funding the NHS. In practice, healthcare spending continued on an upward trajectory and wasn't linked to how much money was being raised through the national insurance increase. Brown increased the tax burden and bloated the state without giving patients much in the way of return. Nothing about Johnson's proposals so far suggests the outcome will be any different. The Tory party is about to become even more unpopular with younger voters. It plans to tax the working age population more to support the old. But this funding stream is becoming increasingly unsustainable. In 1971, there were 4.6 working age people for every person over the age of 65. Last year, it was down to 3.3. And the ratio is set to decline further. The Office for National Statistics predicts that by 2050, it will fall to 2.3. The government isn't just running out of other people's money, it's running out of workers, too. There is little discussion about whether the 2011 proposals are even fit for purpose, particularly after the pandemic. Are we really so sure that care homes, as they currently operate, are the right choice for our growing elderly population? Our society is aging, but the proportion of over 85s in residential care homes has fallen from 25% in the mid-1990s to under 15% today. Lockdown was not a good advert for care homes. The pandemic led to families being cut off from their loved ones for many months. The rigid system isn't designed for the individual. With the possibility of another wave of COVID or even another virus, would relatives be willing to take the same risk again? Might people find other ways of looking after their relatives? We're very nervous, says one Tory MP when asked about the social care plan. We don't even know the full details about what these tax hikes get us. There is no obvious answer. Young people are not going to be able to foot this bill forever, but the prospect of making people sell off their homes to pay for their care remains politically impossible. But the alternative option of a social care insurance scheme, which would enable people to protect their assets and contribute to their care, remains completely off the cards. Never mind that countries with universal health care, such as Germany and France, use statutory insurance to help fund their systems. Any discussion of how the market could be used to improve UK healthcare is thought to be politically toxic. What's the answer? More tax? That's politically dangerous too, particularly for a prime minister who promised he wouldn't raise key taxes. But if taxes do rise, voters will expect something in return. It's not clear that the Tories can deliver this. That was Kate Andrews. And now, Mary Wakefield. The end of summer 2021 the end of the great British staycation. I sat on the grass outside the post office on Holy Island, Northumberland, and watched as the tourists milled about. After a visit to the Priory and the Pilgrim's Fudge Kitchen, a fair few of them would wander up to the Catholic Church, St Aidan's. Even if you're not the sort to ever go to church, you might pop in for a quick look on Holy Island, also known as Lindisfarne. This is where the Gospels were translated, and where St Aidan in 635, founded the monastery from which he converted the pagan north. Aidan came here from Iona at the request of nice King Oswald and went about on foot evangelising. Not horseback, says Bede. He didn't want to set himself above the locals. On Holy Island, the tourists are polite. 
they wear Gore-Tex and walk the village with their heads slightly tilted, signifying interest and respect. But when they try the door of St Aidan's Church, they find it locked. Some of them push hard, then look embarrassed. Watching them, I feel embarrassed for the church. On the eve of St Aidan's feast day, which was the 31st of August, it feels like a metaphor or a portent. This was the evangelical opportunity of the century. All summer, the causeway onto the island has gleamed with cars and camper vans. St Aidan himself would have welcomed them, but his church was shut, though the St Aidan's winery, the mead shop down the road, was heaving. For mass times, please check notices on the door, says the church website, but there are no notices on the door, and the phone number rings through to voicemail. Perhaps I'm taking it too personally. There is an open church on the island, the C of E Parish Church of St Mary's, where visitors can light candles, though not sit down. St Aidan's is small, and there's no official resident Catholic priest. There are tide times to negotiate, and the parish mother church is 40 minutes down the A1. I expect church officials simply thought, why bother opening? A tourist isn't a pilgrim. But place matters to humans. It affects them in weird ways. Men travel miles to the site of ancient battles and stand in empty fields with distant, watery eyes hearing cannon fire. We go to graveyards to talk to the dead, and Holy Island can make a pilgrim of anyone. Long before I thought of myself as a believer, without quite knowing why, I'd drive 30 minutes or so, or so from home, here, to offload my 20-something angst. I'd sit facing east on the harbour steps and mope at the pale sea. Later, I preferred Hobthrush, the tiny tidal island where St Cuthbert is said to have gone to escape his 7th century fans. A hob is a medieval goblin, and at the right time of year, seals, lolling on nearby sandbanks, wail and coo like diabolical backing singers. After I converted to Catholicism, I'd sit in St Aidan's church. There was rarely a priest there, but it was open, a holy place in a holy place. And that's what puzzles me the most. You don't even need a priest present, just a place to pray. The rules have relaxed. We're taking responsibility for ourselves. So what's the harm in just leaving the church doors open? I'm extremely sympathetic to any islanders anxious about COVID-infested visitors. If everything was shut, it would make sense to keep non-locals at bay. But the gift shops and cafes jostle with tourists. People queue for bookmarks and commemorative coasters. The winery sells mead faster than they can make it. So why not let people pray? Drain the holy water if you like. Swap it out for holy hand gel. But let people creep in and offer up this terrible year. It's not just the Catholic Church that's shut. On the way to the winery, the road pun runs past the United Reformed Church, also shut, behind which is a tiny cupboard, the boiler room chapel, with just a cross and a seat. My small son, though named for a Lindisfarne saint, is sceptical about God, but this he considers his personal sanctuary, his hotline to the Almighty. Like an idiot, I assumed it would be open and let him head there straight away. Nope, shut, with an officious new little gold lock. I sent a polite email to the United Reformed Church, wondering why the tiny chapel was closed, and a few days later received a friendly reply. I am sorry you were disappointed to find the centre and the boiler room chapel closed, 
The centre and the small chapel are closed as we do not have the facilities to be COVID secure. This is under regular review. I'm grateful for the reply, but COVID is wearing thin as an excuse. This is a one-person chapel. You couldn't squash in two households if you tried. It's no less COVID secure than any of the millions of open public loos. And what sort of message do you give the Christian curious if they can buy apricot crumble vegan ice cream from the Pilgrim's Fudge Kitchen but find nowhere to kneel? On the far eastern edge of the island, in the shadow of Lutchin's Lindisfarne Castle, there's a beach made up of stones of various sorts. Limestone, basalt, sandstone, ironstone. For the past few years, visitors to the island have taken to piling these stones up into stacks. But this year, the towers have multiplied. It's a strange sight, as if the beach has grown suddenly upwards. People who enjoy being cross think the stone stacks an abomination. They ruin the wilderness, they say, and destroy the illusion that we're all alone in the untouched wild here. But every place has been touched by other people. There's something suspect about the desire for fictitious, pristine nature. I find the stone stacks moving. I think of each one as a sort of prayer. Perhaps it's what you do to mark your visit when you've tried the door and found the church is shut. That was Mary Wakefield. Finally, Caroline Crampton. To write about London and its rivers is to enter a crowded literary field. Many aspects of watery life in the capital have been documented for public consumption over the past 150 years, from Hilaire Belloc's lament for the river's lost monasteries in the historic Thames to Peter Ackroyd's doorstop, London, a biography. More recently, it is previously unremarked everyday stories which have found a home on many publishers' lists. The practice of mudlarking especially, of sifting objects from the river's mud, has held readers in thrall. Sometimes it sounds as though the Thames foreshore at low tide must be as busy as a King's Cross platform during a pre-pandemic rush hour. In this latest addition to the city's riparian canon, London Clay, the poet Tom Chivers documents a series of journeys in the deep city. He wisely makes no attempt to be comprehensive or exhaustive in his wanderings, choosing rather to cover those areas of the metropolis to which he has a personal connection. Thus, he begins on the cusp of the East End in Aldgate, where he lived for many years as a young man, moves on to the Herne Hill area of South London where he grew up, and ends in his family's current home, Bermondsey. Along the way, he makes excursions to places such as Westminster, Hampstead, the city and Stratford, which have links to the subterranean features he is examining. The Lost Rivers of London are a major preoccupation of this book. These are streams, such as the Fleet and the Woolbrook, which have been gradually diverted and culverted over the centuries to run through sewers rather than on the surface. Armed with a street finder map which he has coloured in to show the city's different rock strata, Chivers and a rotating cast of friends walk the course of several such streams and observe their modern-day traces. Geological features such as scour holes and former islands like the one upon which the Palace of Westminster stands are similarly investigated. These accounts provide periodic surprises, even for the most dedicated student of this subject. For instance, I lived for many years mere yards from a mysterious subterranean South London depression, known to archaeologists as the Rockingham Anomaly, with no idea of its presence. Similarly, I'm sure that few people who work in the Treasury Building on Horse Guards Road are aware that it is probably a hidden branch of the Tyburn, which periodically floods the deepest basements. 
London Clay belongs to the subgenre of books referred to now as creative non-fiction. Writing in this space is an exercise in synthesis. Rather than focusing in detail on any one aspect of the subject, the trick is to unite disparate approaches into a seamless original whole. When it comes off, the results can feel utterly fresh. The combination of hawking, grief and literary history in Helen MacDonald's H's for Hawk comes to mind. But if the disparate elements don't quite meld into a singular whole, the result can be clunky and patchy, neither one thing nor another. The latter problem besets this book. It is not a work about subterranean urban exploring, and Chivers only physically descends beneath the surface once, on page 135, as part of a press trip into the new super sewer currently under construction. Those hoping for first-hand accounts of Bazalgette's great sewers will be disappointed. Nor is it an expert treatise on London's geology and archaeology, or an in-depth history of the capital's waterways, or a comprehensive walking guide to the hidden rivers. Parts of Chivers's own story are movingly written, such as the passages about his mother, who died young of cancer when he was in his teens. But the book does not exhibit the consummate memoirist's gift of being able to tell which memories that are interesting and precious to the writer will also resonate with the reader. The voluminous recollection of quotidian details encountered on his walks does at times hit the mark. The description of meeting a marvellous character called John in the Elephant and Castle shopping centre is a notable highlight. Most of the time, however, it all streams past in a similar manner to a conversation overheard on the bus or an account of someone else's dream. Similarly, the sprinkling of references to events at the time the trips were undertaken adds little. Allusions to Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism, for instance, or the progress of Brexit legislation, don't link fully to the book's overall narrative. Chivers's explorations continue into the summer of 2020, when lockdown restrictions meant that he could no longer meet experts in person or visit crowded indoor places. Perhaps because of these limitations, the concluding passages shine out above the rest. The birth of his second child, the struggle to keep a toddler entertained indoors, and a touchingly understated outdoor reunion with his father are woven cleverly into an account of how the River Lee winds its way through the Olympic Park to the Thames. He captures something of the strangeness of living in a city crowded with people and history at a time when everyone was forced to stay apart and inside. One phrase that he uses to sign his messages during that eerie period of isolation lingers and speaks to something of the strange solitariness of London's underland too. From our little island to yours. That was Caroline Crampton. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spectator Out Loud and do join us again next week. 